I'm Shepard. I'm Dan. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore. It's the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Shepard, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? So, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and I have precisely one published thing under my uh, nom de plume, Earth Nova, a uh, flash fiction short story called This Story Has a Ghost in It. You know, comedy, supernatural, and I'm working on some other stuff. But other than that, I'm a just complete ghost uh, online. Mm-hmm. That's for the best, as, as should everybody be. And Dan, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Dan. Uh, this is my second time as a lord, which is very exciting. Uh, the only real thing I have to plug is that I'm still continuing my article series on the Wheel of Time novels uh, by Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson, uh, which you can find on my website, strangecurrencies.org. All right. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yes. Absolutely. Dan, your topic is only playing narrative-slash-story-driven video games once. When I say story-driven, I mean, you know, the plot choice types of games that people famously play through order to get all of the different versions. Uh, you know, your Mass Effect, Firewatch, uh, that kind of thing. And I've just never had any desire to go through it again and see the other versions of things. I play it once, and that's the game. That's the game that I played, those are the choices that I made, that's the content I saw. And I honestly feel like it gives a better experience, even if you might be missing out on some, you know, very good writing or interesting things that are in there, just because it stays very distinct in my mind. And so I still remember it as an actual continuous story and don't have to try and remember which bits were from which playthrough. Yeah. I don't know how you approach games in general, but uh, my approach, and I think a lot of people's, is to want to see all the stuff. Just, I just like content. And sorry, I'm I'm very definitely that way with games that are not based on a compelling like single through line story that goes from the start to the end. In games that just have neat writing and cool stuff, I will absolutely explore every nook and cranny and do all of the different things. But just in you know in something like Firewatch, I played that game and it was a great experience and I really enjoyed it. And I think even though I know there's a bunch of other stuff that will be just as good as the stuff I saw. I just, I value having that distinct memory more, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I like that as an approach to to appreciating things. Like, you could, like, go to a museum that way. You know, you walk through the museum, and that's the experience you had, and you never have to go there again. I always end up doing that incidentally, rather on purpose. Because, like, what, one way to think about it is you're you're getting less than you paid for. Like, you paid for all the endings and you're seeing just one but like i play mass fact 2 exactly one time and i was planning on playing like all three together eventually and that just never materialized but like because like it's like a branching story so the one that i played is just the canonical you know how it happened yeah well mass effect uh, we're talking about that's what four four rpg length games so the idea of like replaying that series is is, is a huge time investment. Yeah, though people do it, and Mass Effect specifically, like I remember having a conversation with some friends about Mass Effect, and one of them was talking about uh, their experience with the character Ashley, and I was just like, "Nuts to Ashley! Ashley's the like space racist," and they were like, "Well, no, <laughs> but she gets better, and you know, by the end of Mass Effect Three, I was like, 
but no, no, she's, she's dead, my friend. Like, I'm sorry. She died because she was the space racist. And that's the story. (laughs) I didn't play it again to do it a different way to see what would happen. I was like, oh, here's the story. And so I actually can't play Mass Effect 3 now because uh, due to a computer change, I lost my Mass Effect 1 and 2 saves. And so right. the only way to set up Mass Effect 3 like with everything that was necessary would be to play through 1 and 2 again, except 1, I don't want to, and 2, I can't guarantee I'll make exactly all of the same choices. But if I haven't made exactly all of the same choices, it feels like the Mass Effect 3 I'm playing is like the wrong one. It's you slipped into an alternate reality Mass Effect 3, yeah. Couldn't you just import your Mass Effect save from Frog Fractions into Mass Effect 3? <laughs> Frog Fractions doesn't doesn't create a Mass Effect save, it only reads them. Yeah, but then it's there from when you put it in in the first place. Right, right. If if you uh if you made a backup of your Mass Effect 2 save in order to import it into Frog Fractions, Although, in theory, if I made a backup of that save, I would have it to import into Mass Effect, but... Right. Yes, exactly. So I had um, put this in the bucket thinking it would be slightly different, an issue that I often have with games. And in fact, this is like part of what the Frog Fractions Hat DLC is about. I will like play a game or watch a movie or whatever and like it and then later play it again to try to get the same experience that I got last time and which doesn't work. At the best, you get like an echo of it or like a pleasant reminder of it. And then you get the new experience of replaying the game. And sometimes, if if you're this kind of person, you might play a game over and over again, especially if it's a short game. Uh, like I have definitely 100%ed Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 several dozen times uh, because it's not, doesn't take too long. Uh, but and and actually, Tony Hawk's, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Three is a bad example because that's kind of a time attack. You're meant to like play arcadey, play it and get better kind of a situation. But if it's a, a narrative driven game or even a content driven game, it just doesn't it doesn't work. And like as as you play it over and over again and get more used to it and more like this just becomes like a groove in your head that you that you wear into your to your brain like the less capable it is of surprising you it's just not tenable as a way to to have an adventure i've been having that recently when i uh started getting serious about emulators and like going back back playing uh gba and the ps2 games and it's like once you go through all the fiddly bits to get it working and then you're playing it, and it's like, uh, it's been years, games are different now, and some of the annoying things uh, you didn't like, you suddenly see a lot better. And then you just uh, play it for 10 minutes, and then uh, you forget about it. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely found that, um, like when I got the the NES and SNES Classic, I definitely had more fun setting them up and installing the games I wanted to be on them than actually playing the games on them. And, and and part of that, of course, is just that, like, I, I've played those games. I play, like, I got Nesticle in, in the late 90s, and I played all the NES games I cared about for free. I could just get them online, and there wasn't any, like, there was no longer a, a you have to wait till your birthday or Christmas to get a new game. I could just get them all at once, and I played all the ones I cared about, and now I'm done with the NES. Like, there's no longer any mystery or magic in that system for me 
except in my memory and except in like like as as like a totem and so having like that little statue is i guess is more of what it is than an actual entertainment device that was worth what what 60 bucks was it if you weren't paying scalpers yeah i think it was about that much yeah yeah like my best times with the uh, nes classic were just kind of like zoning out and letting the game's autoplay like letting the game demos play through there's like a 30 second clip of each game playing and between that there's pleasant you know menu music like an included let's play built into uh the thing yeah yeah 30 30 second let's play for each game yep i had a similar sort of experience with uh i think we linked it in the discord that the forget who it was now who put together that just giant archive of every dos game basically ever oh yeah like several thousand games i think altogether uh right yeah and the the fun i had going through it and just clearing out all the ones that i had absolutely no desire or interest to play and seeing oh i remember playing this game and like the like two hours or three hours of going through the giant list to just pull out the ones that i had sort of nostalgia for or remembered other people saying were good was far more enjoyable than like actually playing any of them were because you know <laughs> they're all dos games from many years ago and most of them don't play very well and there's uh definitely i had a lot more fun sorting through the list and like getting it all queued up and ready to go than actually playing yeah i don't know i don't remember if i've talked about this phenomenon on the show the uh one of the things that you do when you're setting up installing new roms on the nes and the snes classic it asks you for box art and box art is something that like i did not ruin box art for myself in the late 90s because when i played all those games that either I played them to death or they turned out to be mostly garbage because most of those games were garbage. The association that I built up with that feeling was file names. Like the name of the game, maybe shortened eight letters. I can't remember if I was playing in those circumstances or not. And the, the file extension. And so when I see the box art for these games, I'm still like, ooh, exciting. This is new. And, and because I, the, the association that I still have overwhelmingly with box art is seeing game boxes in game stores and being excited and, and anticipating what this game might be like. And it's also detached from the reality of what uh, the game looks like usually. Yeah, yeah. But even then, like, um, looking at, if you look at the back of a box, you'll see screenshots. And screenshots of games like, of old, like, 80s games still do it for me in a way that the game in motion, like, if I saw two frames in a row of this game, I'd be like, oh, okay, it's that kind of game. But just one frame, like, oh, that's exciting and mysterious. Are we ready for another topic? I think so. Uh, Shepard, your topic is, sometimes life is like an adventure game. A skill or item that's useless when you get it is needed years later. So the memory that made me think of this was about 10 years I was, this was about the time of uh, Windows Vista and I was getting sick of it. So I was uh, switching to Linux and I was uh, learning to make things work, including virtual machines and uh, just spent hours of my free time figuring out uh, VHD and uh getting configurations to work to run Windows inside of that. And then 
several years later, I'm at a completely different job. And there was a issue with a proprietary software that could only run on Windows Server 2003. And my boss and the developer were trying to figure out how to use a different location's computer to, to, to like serve two different locations. And I'm like, why not use a virtual machine uh, on the other location? And they're like, what's a virtual machine? And so I saved the company literally thousands of dollars. They were looking at using a like really heavy duty VPN instead. And uh, it's just something that I learned goofing around. And in between the two, I stopped and went back to Windows for Windows uh, 7 and forgot all about VirtualBox. And then suddenly I needed it again. And it's sort of like when you're in an old uh, game. I, I didn't play that many, but like there was one where you got custard pie early on and you needed to never use it until uh, Yeti needed it uh, several hours later. And then that's how you progress in the game. Otherwise, uh, you fail and kind of feels like that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had the chance to have this, this experience much because my strategy for whenever I learn a new skill is to spend all my free time desperately searching for ways to use it. So the bread maker approach where you buy bread maker and then find every excuse to use that all the time. Yes, yes, which is why I don't have a bread maker anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think if there are any unlocked skills like that for me didn't feel useful at the time. But I don't know, I, I bounce back and forth between so many things all the time, and I almost always end up circling back to things eventually anyway. It's just the sort of hyper-focus cycle. So I, I don't really know what all's drifting back there that might turn out to be useful someday soon. <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like um, the the work that I produce as a game developer is kind of a stew of all my skills at once. This isn't like, oh, I, I suddenly it turns out I need this skill. This is more like I'm going to find a way to use this, and it'll fit in the this in the Frog Fractions because Frog Fractions is everything. Like if I could have put you know cupcakes in the game, I would have done that. But then maybe someone who's played Frog Fractions later on, years later, will need to win a dance contest to become a president, and then it will be, like, them remembering that all from all those years ago, and then you've just saved bug, bug Mars. Right, right, right. If they, <laughs> they need to win a dance contest, so they'll reach out their index finger and push the arrow keys, and hopefully that counts as a dance to the judges. That was definitely the easiest part of the game for me. <laughs> yeah, and that, that maybe that's that's the uh, well, except that like you can't really fail, but th maybe that was your uh, that, that was your shot at like oh suddenly <laughs> my DDR skills are useful again. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of interesting rhythm game sequences in non-rhythm games that are funny along that line. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm thinking about like okay, so people who are good at chess. I actually don't know how much of an advantage that confers on the chess-derived chess game in, in Glitterman Grove. Are either of you good at chess? Uh, I'm, like, passably good at chess. Yeah, I'm at, like, I know how to move the pieces good at chess. Yeah, I'm, I'm at the, like, better than the people who don't play chess and 
nowhere near as good as the people who play chess level playing chess. <laughs> so like if I'm watching, you know, various chess YouTubers and stuff, the the level I'm at appears to be the level that if you're, you know, in training to be a real serious chess player, the point where you're like you know, seven years old <laughs> is about how good I okay. am at chess. All right. Which is still better than like most adults, but Yeah, that's 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 you could beat a seven year old chess pro. That's actually pretty good. Yeah, for me, every single smart person I personally know is actually somewhat okay at chess. Therefore, the only game, like, uh, I have to convince them to play Go with me because then we're both equally bad. There you go. Perfect. I need to play Go again. Do we want to talk about Go? Is that a, is that a new topic? Hmm. I mean, I'm sure we could. But... <laughs> All right. I, I, it, sounded, it sounded like there was more there. No, it's just one of those games where I started to play it, learn basically the equivalent to your I know how all the pieces move, and right. just lack of anywhere to try like finding a teacher or interested opponents of any kind. I just kind of fell off it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that there's the internet, you don't need to you don't need to leave town to find interested opponents. Yeah, but then you have to know how to uh, think ahead. And someone that can do that, su- suddenly a couple minutes later, you're several dozen points behind and you don't understand at all how they did that. It's like magic. The, the other pieces just show up somehow. Yeah, that's that's been very frustrating. The show Hikaru no Go is uh, pretty good. That's what got me interested in playing Go. I was reading Hikaru no Go in Shonen Jump in like 2001. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. To sort of look at the progression of, uh, I don't know if this is a topic for our list of topics, but just the way that for a very long time, practitioners of Go were very smug about the fact that computers were better than people at chess, but not better than people at Go. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have the, the Go set that I have comes with a little booklet, uh, which is from, like, it's in the 2000s. It's got to be like 2003 or 2004. And it talks about Go AI being so bad that, like, Every year they would have a tournament where the various Go AIs would play each other and the winner would play a match against a human and to make it fair, they would play against like a 12-year-old. And that this was <laughs> proof of how great and complex and wonderful a game Go was. And then Google DeepMind AlphaGo uh, turned out to be better than possibly the best Go player who's ever lived. Yeah, well, it, it turns out like techniques keep getting better. And humans stay the same. Yeah, that was a that was a weird moment. Like even philosophically, it was interesting because I remember listening to Go players talk about that game in in terms of like the AI is playing a different kind of game than Go players usually play. Whereas whereas Go players are playing for points, the AI player's goal is literally to win. And so it may make moves that get less points, but are more likely to win. And that these strategies may, like, they may inform, you know, future. And in fact, like, probably by now it, it is determined whether or not they, inf- and I don't know the answer because I haven't kept up on it, whether or not they inform human strategies. Like, when, when like, humans learn from chess AI. Like this is a, like it is it has shaped the way humans play chess at the highest level. 
it was there was this was something that people were wondering about the Go AI is like or is that going to happen with Go with with human Go, or is it just going to be like no we like humans just aren't smart enough to be able to do this. Yeah, well, I know uh, that Lisa Dole basically quit Go shortly after that. It was, as I understand it, his position was basically like, well, guess there's no point anymore. Like, we thought this was a special different thing that couldn't just be analyzed past and you needed the creative mind of a human to do. And, well, nope. And he just, like, retired and doesn't play anymore. Yeah, yeah. the creative mind of a human uh, programmed the computer that taught itself to play Go. So... It was involved in the recipe somehow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's true. But, like, also, like, humans do lots of stuff that computers are better at, and it still counts as a human activity that's worthwhile. Yeah, like, no no person will ever beat a chess AI ever again, and that's been true for years. But, like, chess is more popular now than it ever has been, so it's not like that stops people. Yeah, it's still the thing, something people do for fun. And it's still something people get paid to do, and it's still people do at high levels of competition and value, and like that is valued by a lot of people. Yeah, I think there's a certain element that just Go in particular, because it was so resistant to the same kinds of brute force AI that were good at chess in the 70s and 80s. I think it just got this veneer of being an extra creative, extra special human-y thing, and so right. I can I can understand people who are at the top of Go seeing that and just going, ugh. All right, like never mind. In a yeah. way that it's not quite the same and stuff like chess. Yeah, I would be curious, like how many other people retired as a result. That may have been his listed reason, but also like psychologically, that defeat. Like it's like you're taking, you're you're being defeated in on behalf of the human race. Like that's got to take a toll on you. Yeah, considering like the the previous test uh, beat the European Go champion who I think was only like a three Dan master or something. Anyway, so like it was just assumed that Lee Siddle would just win. Like yeah. no one, like I think he said that it, it might win one game and instead he won one game and lost the rest. <laughs> and uh, for, for the listeners, if you on YouTube, I think if you just even search for just like alpha go Lee Siddle, I think it's like mix or something. Uh, there's a clip of a move that alpha go makes that the grandmaster who's given commentary plays it on his like commentary board, moves it, looks at the screen as like extremely confused, moves it back again. I remember that. That like that can't be right. They think there's been a mistake, and like Lisa Dole got up and left the room and was yeah. away from the table for like 15 minutes of time because this move was just so shocking and perplexing that they just had no idea what they were doing. And it was like that it played two spots over from where they assumed it would have and that's enough to make it so shocking that they were all just flabbergasted yeah yeah i i remember dipping in and out of the game as they were happening and i remember looking at like okay i i I know enough about go to know basically what this move is trying to do but i don't know if that's a good threat or not my experience is that if someone plays it against me then yes it's a good threat but if i play it against somebody else then no it's (laughs) not a good threat I was just thinking that uh, being forced to retire because a computer does your job better is better than what happened to John Henry. Uh, And for the listeners, what was that? A folktale of a uh, railroad uh, builder where, like, there's a machine that lays down tracks and John Henry uh, has a race against it 
and like John Henry like technically uh builds his track like faster and he wins, but the effort kills him. Yeah, that's uh not <laughs> worth it. Let the Wookiee win. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Uh my topic is Slang Tang Rhythm. Under me Slang Tang, I don't know how to pronounce that. I think I've heard it, but it's a reggae track. So it was in 1985, uh, and this is notable because the backing track is one of the preset rhythms on the Casio Tone MT40, and that rhythm became a huge trope in reggae to the point where it became a, a like a non-ironic subgenre of 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 reggae, and many like hundreds of songs based on this rhythm. Uh, were created in 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 the in the wake of this. So the the backstory here is that Wayne Smith was had a had a friend who was going on tour in the U.S. and he said, "Can you bring me back a synthesizer?" And the, his friend said, "Okay, I'll bring you a DX7, which was like a, an expensive FM synthesizer, very popular at the time, like all over all over the radio." And he ended up bringing back a much cheaper Casio Tone MT40, which is like. On the one hand, like thanks a lot, dude. But on the other hand, like it actually is like you know you, if you if you haven't had the chance to play with one of these, you can still get some cool sounds out of it. And when he was messing with the uh, with, with the with the device, uh, he discovered that if you take the rock the rock rhythm preset and you slow it down, like if you listen to it at rock speed, like rock tempos, it's just nonsense. But if you listen to it, like if you slow it way down, it sounds like a reggae beat. A a reggae beat and bass line. Uh, And so they built a track around it and it became a huge hit. So there was a Casio employee, Okuda Hiroko, who was tasked with creating the presets for this device. And she had been hired, uh, her, her thesis in college was about reggae. She had done her, her like graduate thesis about reggae. And so she had reggae on the mind and created this beat, presumably, uh, under the, under that influence. And it's just a super interesting, like, and this was apparently discovered, like her identity was apparently discovered recently. And then her, the, which is why, like, there was a big uh, spate of of articles about this in the past year or so, and it's just a super interesting through line of like what, like this Japanese woman who liked reggae but was creating some like ostensibly creating a rock and roll rhythm that was then discovered you know thousands of miles away by someone else uh, and, and turned into a huge hit. It's just it's and, and turned not not just a huge hit but like. Almost uh, an entire subgenre of the of the of that kind of music is it's a very strange story that I like a lot. So if I'm getting this right, this uh, woman was inspired by reggae to make a rock track that was then used by reggae musicians. Yeah, that's the that's that's basically what the story. Yeah. So like it's funny it found its way back like to the way that's quote unquote supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was a a lucky break, I guess. Yeah, though it's it's interesting. I didn't know about the the sort of its roots in the the keyboard rock rhythm. Uh, I was interested in it just because what it actually ended up being was sort of the 
foundational transition of reggae into like electronic beats like that was oh, nice. the first sort of computerized drum track used in reggae and so it caught on huge and there are tons of songs that use that rhythm but there are also a bunch of other like rhythms that came after that that were also done computerized that were then sort of propagated through the genre like it it's sort of like in the way that uh i don't know if you're familiar with the amen break in, oh yeah in the way that the amen break kind of let's let's give some context for the listeners although like it is a a famous story like uh this was a um a track what was it amen brother by the winstons is that right that sounds about right where it's just i think it's like a late 60s um R&B track where in it happens it so happens that there are a few bars of the drummer playing by himself uh that were like it was a very it was a very heavily sampled drum groove and became one of the most sampled pieces of music like th- those drums are everywhere in every genre it's it's what it's wild yeah and so it's it's the slang tang rhythm had a similar sort of effect on reggae that the MN break had in like electronica, like jungle kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, that's great. I'm 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 glad there was uh there was even more to the story than I thought. And then the the people that followed up on this idea uh, couldn't they they needed to sequence it themselves then. So that requires a much more of an investment. But I guess the idea maybe might be that like once you, you know, spend a hundred bucks to find out, oh, this is, this is, this actually works. Uh, then you might spend several thousand dollars to get a setup to, you know, okay, now here's a situation where I can actually write my own notes. Like you would need a, a real synthesizer and a real sequencer and you need the hardware to hook them together. Then you can really, uh, explore what the genre can do with this new tonality. Are we ready for another topic? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this topic, we're going to be reading the poem Tiger, Tiger by Robin Johnson. Uh, Dan, I believe you wanted to read this one. Uh, yeah, sure. Tiger, Tiger, burning bright. Not sure if I spelled that right. What immortal hand or eye could fashion such a stripy guy? What the hammer that hath hewn it into such a chonky unit? Did who made the lamb make thee or an external franchisee? What the hammer, what the nail that attached thy swishy tail? What the forge and what the bellows? Where were wrought, you floofy fellow? Where was bought the tube of glue by which your fur was stuck to you? In what distant deeps or skies are sold such art and craft supplies? On what anvil wert thou wrought? In what smithy? Who'd have thought? A beast so fearsome, fierce and hungry, could be made by ironmongery? And then uh, it's unclear because of Twitter's interface whether that's the end or if it's just not showing you any more of the thread. I believe that that is the end of the conversion that uh, you wrote. Yeah. I think this is a very entertaining poem. And and this is also in contrast to the original poem. Uh, I really like taking a fearsome tiger and, and referring to it as a stripy guy, like, and a floofy fellow. That's very adorable. I much prefer thinking about tigers as floofers. Yes, the chunky unit with the swishy tail and all of that. Yeah, right. I will, of course, as I, I had mentioned uh, ahead of the show when I requested this be the poem we talk about, how in addition to loving this poem and thinking that it's fantastic, it's especially in counterpoint to how constantly irritated I have been basically my entire life by the original poem that that has the uh, what a mortal hand or eye would form thy fearless symmetry 
hand and eye rhyming with symmetry has always just bothered yeah, me. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't rhyme. It didn't rhyme in the 19th century either. Like, he was just being a dick. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what, what the intentionality was there. Or if it was just like, he learned about slant rhymes that morning and decided to try one out. Or you're supposed to mispronounce it, symmetry? Yeah, that's, I, I, I my part of me wants to do that when I, when I read it or, or say it. But also, part of me hates the part of me that wants to do that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, poems aren't required to rhyme, and they're not required to rhyme on that scheme. No, but the rest of the poem does. But just like, I don't know, is it that it's, that symmetry is the thing that is like not symmetrical relative to the rest of the poem? Is is that the joke? I did a search for like, people, like, why did Blake think that I rhymes with symmetry? And I found a lot of people with a lot of different, like, a lot of different theories explaining why, like, what the artistic decision was behind this, or reasoning behind this artistic decision was, uh, all different and all expressed with, like, with with confidence that this is definitely true. Maybe the real answer is he had a deadline to meet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why not? (laughs) They've both got a Y in them, so. Yeah. Uh, one thing that irked me was seeing an analysis that uh, laid out the rhyme scheme that claimed that those two lines did rhyme, and like, no, that's not the rhyme scheme of this poem. Like, what year is the original from? Let me see. Like, it takes a long time for drifts to happen. 1794, apparently. And the great vowel shift, for for, for reference, was... Uh, 1400 through 1700. So it was definitely done by the time. No, this is, this is not the case of like, it used to be pronounced in such a way that it rhymes. And he wasn't just being a hipster and referring back, like doing it vintage. Gosh. So, so according to the reference I'm looking at, the great vowel shift took place primarily between 1400 and 1700. So it may be that there was some tail end vowel shift I don't know how old Blake was at the time. Like, maybe he has nostalgia for some old vowel shift. <laughs> that would So I can't rule that out. Or like, maybe he read about it or heard about it from a grandpa and thought like, I know how I can make this t- poem sound old timey. See, these are all theories that are just as good as all the theories I saw online. Like one person was claiming that the rhyme is with I and thy. And then fear, fearful symmetry is on the next line, and it's a separate thing to just to set it apart. But just what immortal hand or eye could frame thy? Yeah, that was the right. Nope, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's tetrameter. Like, yeah, it's, yep. Form the symmetry of thy. Of thy fearful symmetry. Yeah, some words rhyme with others, and some don't. <laughs> but going back to the. Uh... Vastly superior modern version. <laughs> yes, let's let's dwell on that for a little bit. <laughs> I enjoy, like, I think just the right amount of the original text is in this, but it's like spread out more, and so it's like you can you can tell very much that it's a conversion of the original, but it's not just I changed some specific lines around. Like different elements of it sort of got moved around and shifted to make sure they were still included, and like it reads along the same kind of thematic lines. Like you're asking the tiger these questions and you get a dissatisfying lack of answer because it's a tiger who can't answer you. 
And so all you have are questions and like the, the theme is still exactly the same. It's just, right. it's a much more fun tiger and that <laughs> the whole thing rhymes. I'm getting faint uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, vibes like uh, this is Calvin talking to Hobbes. Yeah, yeah, this could be like a grown-up Calvin, something that would be something. And in fact, like, if you if you scroll down, other people have that reaction as well. Like, one of the replies is just uh, Calvin wearing a paper, a, news, a newspaper hat and with a speech bubble that's cut off such that it's implied that whatever's above the image is in the, is in the speech bubble. Yeah. And Calvin actually, in Calvin and Hobbes, he quotes Tiger Tiger in one of the strips. Oh, I didn't know that. And also just, there's... Uh, at least one or two poems about Hobbes that are in there. Yeah, yeah. We could, uh, We I guess we already did a Calvin and Hobbes poem, but uh, we could do another Calvin and Hobbes poem. They're pretty good. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Calvin says, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. Blake wrote that. Apparently the, t- the tiger was on fire. Maybe his tail got struck by lightning or something. Flammable, flammable felines. What a weird subject for poetry. I found that on the internet. Yeah, there's uh, another one that I've always enjoyed uh, where he finds Hobbes sleeping and uh, the poem goes, My tiger, it seems, is running around nude. His fur coat must have made him perspire. It lies on the floor. Should this be construed as a permanent change of attire? Perhaps he considers its colors passe, or maybe it fit him too snug. Will he want it back? Should I put it away or use it right here as a rug? And then he just walks away. (laughs) And then presumably the punch is, is Hobbes' reaction to this. Uh, Hobbes says, I wonder when school starts. <laughs> Very good. We See, we've done three poems today. All all tiger poems. Okay, I just did a search for Calvin and Hobbes' poetry, and I need to not look at this because then I will stop <laughs> doing the show. <laughs> because you are in the middle of recording a podcast. Right, yes. <laughs> are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Shepard, your topic is the internet and college are two great tastes that taste terrible together. Okay, so right now I am getting an associate's at LaGuardia Community College, and because of the thing that's happening for the past couple of years, it's been 100% online instead, and uh, it's been pretty bad. Oh, you learn like the doing college online. Yeah, but like not like uh, a program that was made for it. Just a regular lecture kind of college, but like uh, done on computers by teachers that don't understand it to students that don't have good enough internet for it, and everything is they try to do it with a facsimile that just is not good. Like in high school, I did all of that online because uh, I was homeschooled and I just uh, taught myself computers and that was decent enough. But like right now, uh, like especially at the beginning of 2020, they were trying to figure out how to do exactly the same thing, but on the computer. Like uh, like y- you mentioned anybody going to college right now, uh, p- Blackboard discussion, and you're going to uh, trigger seizure in them. Uh-huh. This is actually a very uh, serendipitous topic for me. On I am like one month clear of having also just done an entire college program online, so I am actually very familiar with this phenomenon. And yeah, it's it's bad how 
zero effort was put in changing course delivery to account for it all being online to the point where there were classes that were just entirely redundant. Like, I had courses where in advance of the class, the teacher would post a like lecture guide that was basically just partially written notes with, you know, blanks in it for us to fill in on the lecture, and then would post the PowerPoint presentation, which was verbatim the text of the lecture guide, only with all the words filled in instead of not. And then the lecture would be the professor reading the PowerPoint aloud to us. And then that was the end of the lecture. And in person, is the difference that you wouldn't have those notes? Well, I think, I mean, in person, if even if you were given the lecture guide, the lecture would just be them standing at the front of the room and talking. So you'd have to pay attention and listen and follow along in your lecture notes and fill in the relevant information. But because their conversion to online was just to type out the lecture into a PowerPoint and then read it out loud, but then gave us that ahead of time. Like there was just, there was no reason to go to the class at all. Yeah. I I have to wonder, like, I don't think it's going to happen. Realistically, I don't think it's going to happen at all because I think we're going to go back to um, in-person classes before we figure it out. But someday someone's going to figure out how to give a, give a class online in a smart and meaningful way. Well, just because you can't do schooling online doesn't mean you can't do education. Like, you know, I seriously learn things literally every single day on the internet. Like, internet by itself is a <laughs> good true. taste. It works. Like, I taught myself virtual machines uh, from earlier. That was all from uh, the internet. And, like, the, the CUNY school system... That's also good, you know, uh, actually learn some things with that. That's another good taste. And yet it's uh, it, it just doesn't work together for some mysterious reason, because <laughs> independently, they're great. And I mean, it can. I can definitely like I had classes that were well done in the online format, but even just you know, the way any seminar class works where, you know, you do all of the reading on your own time and then what you do in class is talk about it. You know, there's definitely a way to sort of, you know, have given us that PowerPoint or that module or that whatever the information is ahead of time so we can look at it on our own and then make the actual class be about, you know, discussing it, applying it, answering questions about it. Then at least you're, you know, you're getting some use out of putting all of us in a in a WebEx room together. Like, Instead of just everyone turns the camera off and I guarantee you of this have just walked away from the computer and then that's the class. <laughs> and of course, one of them is WebEx. Another one is uh, a different software. One of them's Google Classroom. One of them's uh, Slack. And then another one's Discord. And they're all the same semester. And you have to have each different thing. You just have to learn how to do like, you know, I seriously, this semester is the first time I've tr uh, had to do Slack. I had to learn that and then actually learn the class. It's bonus learning. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. an extracurricular activity. <laughs> yeah, that sounds frustrating as hell. Oh, yeah, it, it very much is. And just, yeah, so many of the professors did basically what they were told of do the thing on this thing. And then that was it. And like very little effort to actually people a little i mean many lectures about how we need to like sit and turn our cameras on and pay attention and listen up but nothing to make us particularly want to do that yeah i've been lucky that the only class that's been required to have my camera on is uh 
sign language class, which, you know, kind of makes sense that that one's uh, required. Otherwise, I can't, you know, actually speak if I don't have my camera on. Yeah. Okay. So I wonder if American Sign Language is like especially well suited to being taught over the internet. I don't know if that makes sense or not. I think I can say on behalf of deaf people that uh, the internet has been uh, 100% good in terms of like uh, the equivalent of the invention of the telephone is what it's like for being able to use uh, Skype or other uh, video chatting software. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Deaf people love the internet. The idea that I was trying to get at with that like half-baked thought was when I'm trying to do a task, like I am constantly dealing with like mental, like I should, I should look at my phone for a dopamine hit and like I can pull the refresh instead of doing what I'm doing. Um, but if I'm doing something like yard work where I'm wearing gloves and goggles and earplugs, if I'm like running a weed whacker or something like that, the idea of pulling my phone out, uh, it would take you know, a couple of minutes before I could get that dopamine hit. And so I don't even think of it. And so I wonder if there's some, like some mental barrier you can place to make you want to pay attention. Like if there's some similar process that's happening with like the ASL class that makes you want to pay attention to it. Just the idea of like, I can't like look away and still listen because I won't, it's, it's the visual class you have to be looking at it in order to follow it. And so like, I can't do my usual thing of like walking away and I can still hear the laptop from across the room or whatever. And while I'm doing something else. Yeah. And you can't, uh, lie down either. So like everything is in, in, in place, uh, for you to be able to pay attention. Right. But you know, when you're doing a trial, you can't just tab out and, and check Twitter. Like, that's just not an option. So definitely there are ways to do it that force you to give it your sole attention. Right, yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Dan, your topic is the first time I beat my father at Scrabble. <laughs> All right. I actually had to to talk to him today to double check that my <laughs> recollections were correct. Like, I'm going to talk about this on a podcast, and he didn't really entirely know what that means. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, so, you know, there's there's the thing that always gets talked about in, you know, coming of age shows and all that, where there's that, you know, the moment where you as a kid realize that either, you know, your parents don't know everything or whatever. And there's that sort of like, I don't know if you're supposed to take a sense of like pride or what about the first time you like best your parent at something. But uh, I very, very keenly remember the first time I beat my father at Scrabble because I was probably... Oh, and 150 by at that point. And uh, it was just such an interesting process to me to actually beat him the first time because it's just my dad is a person who grew up playing lots and lots and lots of games, Scrabble and card games, especially. Like he put in his 10,000 hours into Scrabble before I was even born. And so it just sort of seemed like an impossible task. And I would try and try and try. And then one day, I think it was you know, relatively late in life as kids besting their parents go. I was 16, I think, 16 or 17. And I beat him by one point. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, I don't know, that the 
the just the the flood of dopamine <laughs> of actually beating him at a thing that he is good at and he's you know I'd, I'd beaten him at chess years earlier because he never was a chess player this was the first time it was something he was actually good at and better than me that i got better than him and uh i don't know it's just a very interesting experience that i just i wonder whether everybody has a moment like that or if it's just some people yeah i i can't think of a moment in my life although maybe i will over the next few minutes one time uh we were playing risk as a family and uh for the first time uh uh my mom actually managed to beat everybody so we uh actually got a camera to take a picture of the board to commemorate it like uh she she's sort of the one that you know is like you know friendly to all the kids so she's usually the first one out but then uh just completely uh dominated like a a really good game like genuinely it's like so we actually uh framed a photo of it <laughs> oh yeah do you remember what what the last point was i think it was eight, somewhere in asia oh i meant um I meant uh, Dan's Scrabble uh, game. The, the, what was the point that put you over the edge? Um, <clears throat> well, I, don't, I think I think it was because you know when you whoever goes out first, the other person loses points based on whatever letters they still have left. Uh, oh, so okay. I, I think I actually came into the like end game down like three points, and then he had four points of letters left or something, and it oh, it that's brought funny. Me over by one, it was it was extremely close. I had forgotten about that uh, that, that that rule. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting process because we would then play, and once I beat him the first time, it just suddenly became easier to do. Like, I started, I would say I probably run about a 45% win rate. The way I always thought of it was that uh, I have the better vocabulary, and he has the better, like, Scrabble board awareness. So if neither sure. of us have played for a long time, I've got a really good chance, because I'll I'll just find better words. But the more we play and the more he sort of gets back into it, the more I'm just like buried under somehow getting 24 points off an E or whatever weird sorcery <laughs> he can do. And so now it's hopeless because I haven't played in years and he plays uh, on the computer. We got him set up playing it on the computer and he plays against the expert computer like several times a week. So I'm oh, just yeah. doomed now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you have to start doing reps. Yeah, it was just a particularly weird experience for me just because we have very little overlap in our interests. Like, he was never a video game person. I could never get him interested in uh, Dungeons & Dragons. I could never get him interested in Magic the Gathering. Uh, so just sort of Scrabble, Cribbage, and a few Italian card games that we play are sort of our, our one overlap. And then that's the area where he just continues to be better than me no matter how hard I try. <laughs> For some yeah. reason, I just thought of a Rocky-style montage of doing setups and setting down tiles. Yeah, like sitting, like, so the, I'm, like, laying on the floor, and there's a board on the table, and I, like, do a sit-up to come level with the table and place a word, and then, like, lay back down again. <laughs> I imagine that's a, a similar training regimen for chess boxing. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Last topic of the night. Uh, this, my, my topic is explaining traffic jams, or at least this one traffic jam. I feel like if you, if you, if you drive or I don't know, maybe you watch movies with cars in them, uh, <laughs> then you know about the phenomenon of like cars that are just 
in the, this part of the road, cars just move really slowly for some reason, and then they speed back up. Uh, and sometimes it's it becomes clear when you get there what was happening. Like, they were looking at a two-headed chicken on the side of the road. They had to slow down to take a look. Uh, and even if they weren't interested in the chicken, they still had to slow down because everybody else was slowing down. Uh, I, I had this experience where I was driving on one of those winding roads, the, the kind where, like, everybody goes too fast and there's bicyclists on the shoulder because it's a it's a good slope for them to get exercise on. And, like, the drivers coming the other way never stay in their lane because they're trying to take the corner uh, efficiently. And there was this point up ahead in the road where, like, for no apparent reason, the cars were suddenly stopping to a near standstill before speeding up again. And when I got there, I figured out why. And the reason was there was this point where, like, the shadow of the trees ended or or started. You were driving into the shadow. And so you couldn't see anything in the shadow. What you could see was the sun blinding you while you were driving towards it. And so as you were approaching this, the, the spot beyond which you could see nothing, uh, you would slow down because what you did last see was the people in front of you slowing down. And so as, as, as uh, to the best of your knowledge, they might be completely stationary on the other side. And this was just a phenomenon that, like, I mean, obviously, I've I've had the phenomenon of like driving into a shadow and being blind blind to what's beyond the shadow before, but usually uh, it's never been this intense, and it's never been like a group uh, experience that I was like I was having with a bunch of other people. So basically, a time loop where you see someone slow down for no reason, and then usually slow down for no reason, figure out why, but then the one behind you is experiencing what you just had. Yeah, yeah, there we were all, like, all in a row, we're figuring out why are these people in front of me slowing down. I find traffic stuff to be just extremely fascinating in general. I don't know if I've ever, other than just, oh, there was an accident or whatever, to explain what we're slowing down had that experience of sort of suddenly going, oh, I understand what happened. But just the whole process is extremely fascinating. And, you know, the the function of how, you know, adding lanes to roads actually increases congestion instead of how much of it has to do with just stacking a whole bunch of humans' reaction speeds on top of each other. Yeah. Because, like, by the time you realize the person ahead of you has slowed down and have to slow down... They may have already sped up again, but it's too late. You've already slowed down, which gets the person behind you. And it takes so long that just that's what causes the entire backup is just nothing. Like a bunch of times <laughs> the cause of the traffic slowdown is just nothing. Just not actual anything. And that's super interesting, too. It's a very strange phenomenon. And I, I hope I hope someone's studying this because like I bet they could get like interesting like flocking behavior theories out of it. I've seen, I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't know if you might just have to fiddle around on YouTube. I remember watching a thing where they took like 10 drivers and put them on a like round track and just told them maintain, you know, six feet distance from the car ahead of you and then set them off driving and just they rubber band all over the place almost immediately <laughs> like they just they just can't maintain a fixed distance from another car even when all they have to do is just drive around a circle doing that yeah i would have a hard time doing that 
Well, because you want to keep making little adjustments, and then that just cascades to everyone behind you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, the way they would have to do it is they would have to collude and and all agree to like reach a certain speed and then stop accelerating, go to, go down, go on cruise control. Yeah, but if if you mess it up, you're going to hit someone, and so you can't just assume. Right? Isn't that yeah. what a yep. speed limit technically is? An, an agreement to go a certain speed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, and I'm like that. Everybody is going about the same speed on a road is is crucial to being able to share the road safely. And just think of how much time and efficiency could be saved if just like instead of a car driving on a road the road was just like a track and your car could just like pull onto and be slotted onto the track which could then just all the vehicles on it so none of them had to worry about whether the person in front of or behind of them were changing their speed so like a (laughs) slot car and then you go up on a steep uh turn and your car just flies off yeah then that's how you get to your destination is you that's that's my that's my turn off that's that that replaces off ramps they just swing you through a turn fast yeah, yeah. They put a cushion on the other end, and so you land safely. A take-off ramp instead of an off-ramp. Yeah, perfect. Although, were you because I guess with the slot car thing, it's the car itself that was flying, but now I'm imagining, because of the cushion at the end, that you're just, like, in a convertible, and when it hits the corner, just, like, your seatbelt comes undone, and you just go flying off, and then land on the cushion. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the public transit form of it, whereas where you get... Each uh, the driver has a ejection seat button for every individual on the bus, and that's all the time we have for topic lords. Uh, Shepard, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I will post a link to that short story I have, but otherwise, uh, you can do two things to find me: either don't, or I'm on the Discord under the name Earth Nova. Oh, find find everybody on the Topic Lords Discord. And Dan, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, uh, so you can find me on Twitter at SC underscore underscore Dan, or the review website that that is attached to at strangecurrencies.org. Cool. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been great. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!